You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio. And as our announcer said, we are always the show of ideas Never, ever the show of attitude. Thank you so much for listening this Labor Day Sunday morning. There's so much in life, so much in the structure of our society, our relationship to government, that just has is the way it's always been. And it we just assume certain things are what they are and that they are. It is the right way to structure society. And plus, who has the time to rethink every part of our life, every minute of every day? God, it's exhausting even to say it, let alone to do it. But once in a while, once in a while, important structural uh, elements of our society get stress tested and elements of our society that we have just plain taken for granted that that's the way it is. We start to wonder, hold it a second, how come we're doing it this way and not some other way? And that is what is happening, in my opinion, today and over the past year and in the coming months in the subject of education. And I'll say public education, but we will refine that as we get into the topic this morning. Every single day, in every media outlet in the country, there are articles talking about how we educate our children in general and specifically with the complication caused by managing the the COVID pandemic. And we are asking ourselves, hold it, hold it. Who gets to decide? And how do they get to decide? And Where does the money go? Tell me again. And who gets to decide what? And what are the role of parents? And what are the role of the unions? And what are the role of government? What's the role of CDC? Questions we never have asked ourselves very much during a non-pandemic environment. And now we are asking ourselves. And I thought this is the perfect time to do a deep dive into all of these important topics and ask ourselves along the way whether some basic assumptions we have made about the structure of the providing of education to our children, whether those assumptions we just made, because that's the way it's being done when we got here, whether those assumptions are correct. To help us understand these complex issues, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Matt Welsh. Matt is the editor at large at Reason Magazine, my super, super favorite. There is not even a second choice um, magazine that I read as soon as it comes out. And I love it so much, I even have to touch it. So I read the paper edition and I love when it gets to my home. It is a cover to cover read. I have never found a story in Reason Magazine that I wanted to skip over because I wasn't interested. Even if it's a topic I was not generally interested in, Reason made me interested. So, Matt, thank you so much for the work you have done at Reason Magazine. Along the way, perhaps, I'll tell you the day I got hooked on Reason Magazine. It may have been before you even got there, but I'm happy to share that with my friends. Matt has also written with Nick Gillespie, um, the Declaration of Independence, spelled D-E-N-T-S, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. That's a big task and they accomplish it quite well. And Matt has most recently written in Reason Magazine uh, an article whose headline says it all, families are fleeing government 
run schools. Uh, Matt is experience, uh, experiencing government-run schools firsthand because he is a customer of government-run schools uh, living um, under the control of the New York City school system. Matt, welcome to the show this morning once again. Thank you so much for the uh, generous uh, description of my Yes, wonderful employer. Uh, I'm a place I've been happy to work for for most of the last 20 years. Reason um, we uh, we write it for you, so thank you for that. Thank you, and Matt. The the day that I became hooked for life is uh, goes back quite a while. Reason had as its cover story the loss of privacy. That was the theme of the magazine, and when I went to my mailbox and took out the magazine. On the cover, there was a large headline. It said, Bob Zadick, we know where you live. And on the cover of the magazine was an arrow pointing to a, a Google picture of the town that I then lived in, Sausalito, with an arrow pointing to my house. Oh, my God. How did they do it? And each... Each of the 75,000 or so subscribers to the magazine got their personalized version. Um, and you certainly made the point about the loss of privacy. I remember that day so well. So, and I enjoy sharing the story. Now, Matt, you have written Families are Fleeing Government Run Schools. Tell us the premise of the article. Um, what caught your attention that? you decided to write that article, what was the premise and what was the point you were so anxious to make in the piece you wrote in Reason? So I'm, uh, as you mentioned, a uh, parent of two kids uh, in the K-12 system, uh, one of whom is entering into eighth grade at public school, uh, not just public school, but the public school that was uh, uh, featured in the Nice White Parents podcast by the New York Times, which is uh, amusing, I guess is the way to put it. And then the other one is going into first grade. We pulled her from the public school and put her into a private school. And this is not uh, a decision we took lightly uh, since myself, I never went to a private school in my life. Um, and my wife is uh, French, so they have a different idea that public and private schools we do. Uh, so uh, we did that because the massive uncertainty created by the way that New York City, like almost every big Democratic-run city in the country, uh, and I don't really rush to go to that partisan conclusion, but it's just uh, numerically true, um, uh, made schooling completely unpredictable last year in ways that was just a huge challenge for everybody. We were lucky enough to have the means uh, perhaps foresight to organize a learning pod where you pool up with a couple of other families and you can just, you know, if, if the school decides uh, on a Sunday night at 9.34 p.m. to send you an email saying, sorry, school's going to be closed for 10 days, which happened in February of this year, um, then you have a way to absorb that. But anyways, the uncertainty was so much and, and, and the reveal, um, we'd kind of known but didn't really know the extent to which uh, incompetence uh, with a TS like the Declaration of Independence, uh, incompetence and people who do not put children first in their uh, organizing of policy um, had the most power in determining the policy of uh, K-12 government-run schools, and we just didn't want a part of that um, this year. So the article I wrote uh, was, we're starting to get the preliminary numbers of enrollment um, for the fall. Uh, and a school 10, 15 minutes away uh, from where I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn, uh, had just announced, uh, the principal had sent out an email to families saying, we just lost one-third of our enrollment. An elementary school um, uh, lost 120 students, went down from 345 to 225 um, just since uh, the pandemic. And there, as a result, uh, they're going to have to let go for teachers, Four other teachers found a different uh, job while uh, throughout the, the district or maybe in private school. So this is a huge change. Since I wrote that article, I should add, um, the uh, public school, elementary school that my uh, youngest, that we pulled her out of, 
they also sent an email saying that their enrollment has gone down from 948 two years ago to um, less than 800 um, this year. So these are some of the first indications in the country um, of what the fall enrollment picture is going to look like after last year, in which last year we lost about 3 3.5% of students from the government-run K-12 system. Um, and, uh, and many went into homeschooling. Um, private schools kind of flattened a little bit down. Charter schools went up, but homeschooling was actually the biggest thing. So uh, I have been writing about and participating locally in the policy uh, decisions about um, this thing uh, for uh, uh, the last two years. And what I had been predicting for a long time is that this fall, the numbers to watch this fall, because this is the first time that a lot of parents, a lot of families, have had the opportunity to plan, right? Because the pandemic hit in March of 2020, and everyone was reeling, and those things uh, closed down. Okay, and then summer comes, the next fall comes, and um, and people are kind of creating policy on the fly. You couldn't, like, you know, it's, it's difficult to pick up and move to a different state or a different district. Uh, it's difficult and expensive to go into uh, private systems uh, or whatnot. So this year, this fall is the product of, okay, we've had a year and a half. We've, we've learned what we needed to learn about the way our local school systems are run and the way that other school systems in the completely different areas are run, and we're going to make decisions. So these preliminary numbers indicate to me um, that we're going to see a uh, uh, kind of a, an earth-shaking change in public education, attitudes towards it, participation in it, um, and including attitudes sort of from taxpayers who got to be wondering why are we paying more and more for a quote unquote free system that people a free product that people are running away from screaming because that is what's happening right now. Now let, let's unpack it because there's so much in what you just said, Fuchi. I really thank you. You have just teed up a semester's worth of work. We have an hour to do it in. Let's see how good a job we can do. First of all. Um, the alternative is, or one of the alternatives, is private schools in one form or another, uh, charter schools being what comes to mind right away. But charter schools and private schools in general are suffering from pandemic-related problems. They have the same age demographic, obviously. They draw from the same pool of customers. So what is there structurally that makes the public school system and perhaps larger school systems, but maybe the problem isn't um, limited solely to larger systems, but what is there structurally that enables private school to cater to their customers better than public schools. And I'm sorry for commodifying uh, your two children as customers, but after all, of course, that's exactly what they are. So I'm not um, minimizing their importance as individuals, obviously. But why? uh, what is the structural difference that enables private schools to seem to meet the needs of their customers more than public schools. They have the same motivation. Um, And when you answer the question, um, you'll probably uh, find it helpful to point out why it is important to the public schools to for them to lose enrollment. That is, what is there about how they get their money from the state that makes enrollment important? Yeah, so just addressing the latter, in most jurisdictions, though not all, um, a, a big chunk of school budgeting is based on per students, right? Um, this school, that my school, that went from 948 students to, so let's say it's 770. I don't know what it's going to be. They don't either. Um, that means um, they're going to lose a big chunk of funding. Now, they'll probably be able to bridge the gap for a year because let's not forget that Washington – uh, federal government over the last two years has sent something like uh, close to $200 billion to K-12 for emergency uh, coronavirus-related uh, stuff, um, uh, helping out. And generally speaking, on a given year, the federal government sends $40 billion. So it's a huge flood of money 
that's come on. And in, in, in theory, that money uh, was being sold as we're going to use this to you know uh, improve our vent- ventilation systems to do mitigation measures. In practice, when you look at the numbers, it's almost all in personnel. So uh, the teachers' unions who have a completely outsized um, influence on school policies in Democratic-run polities, which right now includes um, the federal government and the Biden administration, whose his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, is a member of the National Education Association, and she had the two union teachers' union presidents in the White House on literally day two of, of this uh, uh, administration. So, But yes, the public schools eventually uh, have to uh, feel pressure budgetarily by not serving their students. So it's an interesting to answer the first half of your question um, about a different approach of uh, private and charter schools. Private and charter schools are, um, of course, charter schools, they're also public schools. They, they are funded by government money, um, but they're not run by governments. They're, not, uh, they're generally not unionized uh, places. They get to be much more nimble in the way they approach things. And, for instance, in the city of New York, they educate 10% of the uh, of the student population K through 12 here because the uh, the government run schools didn't have that great of a reputation um, and weren't as nimble about uh, helping out uh, being sensitive to uh, parental needs um, and there's a cap there's an artificial cap that the state puts because we have crazy government in, the, in New York um, there's an artificial cap on the number of physical charter schools they can be so even with that it still increased last year. And even though charters were as closed um, as the normal schools, because they kind of had to have the same pandemic rules, it's just that parents had the intuition that they were handling the remote learning, which is generally a disaster, but they were handling it better. They were being more sensitive. They were being more creative and flexible. So parents, especially poor and more minority families, uh, found that to be pretty useful last year. What private schools did that was different than public schools last year is that they were open. Um, it's astonishing to see how many places, um, New York was one of them, private schools were open the entire year, um, right, into, right across the street from a public school that was maybe open twice a week uh, and then subject to all kinds of hair trigger closures uh, and shutdowns. This is especially true in California, where you know, um, California had the least open schools in the country. Um, and right across the street from many of those least open schools were private schools, Catholic schools, and whatnot. They were all open uh, for the most part, uh, except where they're uh, subjected to too much uh, kind of rule setting um, by state governments. But generally speaking, they're open. So even though globally um, the number of private schools uh, went down in enrollment last year, um, I, they're starting to tick back up this year. They just suffered from a lot of, uh, you know, material uh, shortages that parents had as everyone was sort of scrambling around. Um, but the uh, the exodus from those institutions, from public schools, and then also particularly to homeschooling, which doubled in this country, um, and including the uh, the biggest growth element of homeschooling are black families. Um, uh, so uh, that is changing the way that people teach. A lot of people um, experienced at least some remote learning and so they became face-to-face with the curriculum and also face-to-face with the decision-making process. And, man, when you start looking at the sausage it is, and the way it gets made, and, oh, boy, uh, I know so many parents who couldn't believe what they saw. I had a better inkling of it because I've been writing about and participating in some of the uh, policymaking in New York, uh, especially as it concerns the subject of equity, um, term of art to sort of mean equality among uh, races and classes of people and the way that things are provided. And so I was face-to-face with a lot of crazy stuff. Um, so I knew going in that it was kind of crazy. But a lot of things discovered that for the first time in the pandemic and came to the rational conclusion, yeah, I don't really think my kid needs to go through this. So really what has happened, I guess a subtext, not so sub, but a subtext of your article could very well have been uh, – customers are discovering um, that they have been purchasing an inferior product. It's far more subtle when there are issues about curriculum and things of that nature that it's a little harder for a 
typical, if there is such a thing, parent to discover on a day-by-day basis uh, how inferior or not the product is. The only real basis is perhaps testing, which is revealing itself, but doesn't tell the whole story. But now, in, in a way that affects parents profoundly, is, is your child going to be at school? That is, do you have to arrange for child care or must you stay home from your job to take care all of a sudden without planning of your child who is now going to be at home and must you find another way to educate? All of a sudden, parents are realizing in as profound a way as possible that maybe their vendor, the government-run school, is not the best vendor in the world, and maybe we have to look for alternatives. So COVID is in many ways a very visual stress test of the product itself and the way it makes decisions. Um, So all that happened was, um, I shouldn't say all, that sounds like I'm minimizing it, but COVID merely brought to the front pages the inferior the inferiority of the government sold product um think uh yugo automobiles as a reasonable parallel um that <laughs> government is a provider of an inferior product and now we better look elsewhere and all of a sudden the demand for the privately sold product is increasing so i think it's a fair subtext of your article that families are fleeing government-run schools could just as easily have been headlined that I'm not a headline writer, is that parents are moving their account or changing vendors in, in large quantities. And COVID is not the cause of it. COVID is the stress test that brought all this to the fore. Now, what is there about, um, and this is a softball question, Matt, and uh, maybe you can just give a shortish answer, but why should it be that here you have the administration of a government-run school, which has a problem? It has to provide education and in a way that doesn't threaten the health and safety of its customers. And a private school has the very same challenge. What is there structurally that makes one reach a wrong conclusion, terribly wrong, and the other institution, the the private business of charter schools to seem to make the right decision, at least one which is more appealing to its customers. What's the structural issue here? Because you have given this so much thought. Um, The overwhelming, um, uh, the the biggest factor, uh, two biggest factors in uh, determining whether a given school system district is going to be open or closed or was going to be open or closed during uh, the previous school year. And this will also, I think, predict uh, mostly how um, school closures will happen in this fall as well. But it's been studied by everybody. Um, Two uh, things will tell you this, and neither of those two things have to do with the pandemic, the virus, um, the local uh, positivity rate, none of that. Uh, Number of deaths, none of that. The two factors are, um, how did this district vote um, when given a chance to vote for Donald Trump, I swear to God. Uh, and then two, <laughs> what is this? What is this? I wish it was something different. It bums me out that that's the truth, but that is. And the second thing is, um, what is uh, the strength, the uh, influence of the local teachers union? Those are the two factors by far. And um, I think it's the second one that also has driven a lot of parents. Uh, kind of batty because they you know, are now paying close attention to the statements of people like Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, or the, uh, uh, the school uh, unions in uh, uh, Los Angeles, United Teachers LA, uh, United Teachers Chicago as well. It's not just that um, a lot of these union officials, and you know, it's a hard question, opening and closing schools, that's hard. Let's, let's show some generosity here. Um, but uh, not only did they err really badly on the side of closing things down 
even though international experience, all the other countries, for the most part, kept their schools open last fall, um, including during the Delta uh, virus and uh, Delta variant in uh, the U.K. over the summer. Um, but uh, in, in the U.S., not only did the teachers' union influence places uh, close things down, but the kind of comments that they made, they would treat parents uh, like me who were advocating for keeping schools open. They would say, that's white privilege talking. They would open up all these weird can of worms about racism and, like, you know, you just want some of the babysit your kids and all of these really kind of uh, accusatory, nasty, divisive uh, and also, in order to do things, the ability of teachers uh, and teachers' unions to work at home, and that's what they wanted to do. Um, so it was about choice. It was about school choice for teachers. It was not about school choice for kids. And so it's that strength of union. And once people saw saw that that was the mechanism, then you lose face. Um, quick example for me is that uh, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, who I'm no fan of, about uh, four or five months ago, kind of flipped his script on schools and said, we have to stay open, and remote learning is a debacle, and we're not even going to offer that anymore. We have to, you know, school is safe. Let's do this, right? So I was, I was happy to hear that, and this was happening right when we were making our decision about our own six-year-old. Um, but I rationally looked at it and said, sure, he might say that, but what are the rules that are going to be promulgated afterwards? What is the policy going to be like, and who is going to be influencing that policy? Answer, teachers' unions. Therefore, the policies, regardless of rhetoric, are likely to make it more uh, likely that elementary schools will close a lot of the time. And now seeing what those policies are, I've been vindicated. Uh, My elementary school will be closing a whole bunch this year. Kids will be quarantining on a hair trigger, whereas the private school literally across the street that we're going to is going to stay open. It has been observed that to the extent that charter schools operate in this uh, or appeal to the same customer base as government-run schools, that, and I think this is not even, no one takes issue with this, the overall quality of the service delivered by the government-run school improves because now they have to, for the first time, structurally, they have to deal with the concept of competition. They have a test. They have their customers have an alternative. They're not a captive customer base where their customers have no choice. So to what extent is, do you think as an observer that charter schools remaining open Government schools closing, government schools acting unpredictably, uh, charter schools trying to do a better job in giving parents predictability. To what extent can you optimistically, if you can talk about words like optimism in discussing schools, government-run schools, to what extent do you think there is hope that the experience will be that government-run schools might improve, and maybe that's too much to hope for, simply because of the the point in your piece, which is voters are and customers are moving their accounts. I think that it's more likely that um, the positive reforms are going to come from without uh, than from within. Um, there will be some a nimble response to competitions. There will be some good mayors, some good school district chiefs who will look at this and say, hang on, this is an existential change in our business. We need to respond to it as such. But in fact, I think what's happening is that you're seeing on the policy side, it's been, I think, uh, half of the country, uh, 25, 30 states, something like that, had introduced uh, during the pandemic um, some form of legislation in which uh, state education spending, which, to be clear, is one out of every $5. Most states, uh, 20% of the tax money that they spend total, budget, everything, is on K-12 education. So Canada's a big deal. Um, but they've been passing these bills saying that that funding should follow students, not school buildings. That is a huge, huge shift. That's basically institutionalizing on a national level uh, the charter school system, 
um, which you know uh, unions and uh, democratic politicians would, who, of whom they uh, disproportionately support. Ninety-five uh, percent of union money goes to Democrats. Um, they've been railing against charter schools. Bill De Blasio says, "I hate charter schools." Uh, at a at a big uh, charters or a big uh, public education thing when he was you know haphazardly running for president, he said he said he hated the the schools that that teach ten percent of his kids. Are you kidding me? Um, but anyways, all these uh, backpack um, funding bills, right? The money goes into the backpack of the student wherever the student goes, and that could be homeschooling too, which again has grown faster than any other category um, in the last eighteen months. Um, these things are catching fire, and that's just going to mean if you're going to compete or not compete, doesn't matter. You ain't getting money, <laughs> so it's going to it's going to be absolutely a, a force-fed situation of change onto these schools. And um, you know, I, I as someone who um, appreciates competition and education innovation um, and all of it, um, uh, a big part of me is rooting this on for sure. Um, and at the same time, a big part of me is is worrying because we've seen what happens when families en masse flee school systems in big cities. It's kind of what happened in the 60s and 70s with the de- decrepitude of uh, schools and uh, and uh, and also you know busing and a bunch of other uh, kind of uh, social flashpoints that happened back then. Um, it can change a city, you know. Um, it's it's certainly uh, uh, the verge of changing my neighborhood right now. Uh, that change isn't necessarily the greatest. The people who uh, can't uh, or won't muster the ability to leave these decaying systems, which then become decaying cities, um, they're kind of in a pretty bad pickle. Um, so I think, again, it's gonna, the change is going to come from outside, under pressure, including from taxpayers who are going to be saying, why are my property taxes so high when nobody even wants the free school that they're paying for? I'm so glad that you mentioned just a second ago the issue of uh, giving what you called uh, a backpack funding wasn't your exact phrase, uh, but it certainly is descriptive, where you pointed out what was to be on my outline for this morning's show, the very, very next topic, is that we have schools that is educating students is a we would call it a public good. We all benefit in general from having educated youngsters, educated young adults, educated adults, and overall an informed society. That benefits everybody because we make better choices at the polls if we are educated. So certainly education is a public good. We all benefit. Now, should government have a role in education? Well, yes, going back to the founding, going back to uh, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and the others, they profoundly supported um, or the principle that government has a role in the education. That role can be sim- simply one or the other of the following. Government can underwrite the cost to make sure that the the people that nobody is uneducated because they don't have enough money to become educated an appropriate role of government um, supported by tax dollars since we all benefit from an educated public the theory goes the social compact is we ought to have no problem in contributing involuntarily through taxes, but happily sort of uh, contribute tax dollars to make sure all of us are somewhat educated. There's no dispute about, I don't think about any of that. Now the question, and I opened my show by saying, we have taken something for granted because it's always been that way. So now we have concluded, or at least I have suggested it, you have presumably nodded your head in agreement that, yes, the government ought to economically support education. It's a huge leap and an, imp- an, an incorrect leap, in my opinion, that government should further support education by being the provider. That's a big jump. And kind of irrational. There's no reason on earth to think that government is 
particularly good at providing anything very much except perhaps common defense. Uh, but to be a vendor, there's no proof government is a good vendor of anything very much. So therefore, what, uh, what can we agree on? We can agree the government ought to support education with money so that everybody gets educated to some degree despite personal wealth. Uh, but we don't agree and there's no proof to support that government should be a vendor. And I think, Matt, um, what you're talking about in your piece is that if you simply allow the people who are buying the service and receiving the service, the customers, to be given the money to make the choice, they will, in the most small d democratic way, vote with their dollars. And if government wants to offer a product, they can, but not exclusively. We have learned a long time ago, compliments of FedEx et al, that the post office doesn't necessarily provide the best product at the cheapest price, but they get better with FedEx breathing down their back. And that analogy works for school works for school system. So Matt, your piece talking about customers fleeing the school system was really a tome for giving people the to borrow a phrase from Milton Friedman, uh, freedom to choose. Um, and all we are saying, this whole conversation is nothing other than about personal freedom. Do not force anybody to buy a product from the government. The government, if they want to be a vendor, have at it. But isn't this all about empowering the customers, giving them the dollars so they can vote with their dollars and vote for the best product. The, the collective wisdom of all of us is so much smarter than the restricted wisdom, in air quotes, of the few people in government who make the decisions. So your piece, of course, uh, follow, true to the principles at reason, free minds and free markets, uh, true to that principle, uh, we are so, you are simply saying, give us, we will vote with our dollars. That's the most sincere vote. What product is the best? So uh, I, your article gave me so much encouragement because it's simply giving parents the right to vote, albeit with their dollars. Uh, uh, I grew up in the, uh, near the city of Lakewood. My first job was as a, in the Parks and Recs Department for the city of Lakewood, California. Um, only found out later the significance of that city. It became one of the first cities in the country to be what is known as a contract city, by which it just simply meant, why do we have to own a trash collecting system? I thought that was Why Sandy we, Springs, Maryland. Sandy Springs, Georgia. Uh, that's a, the that's the the governing charter contract uh, city, which is a, a little bit different. But this by uh, contract city in the parlance of Lakewood is just that they contracted out services. Uh, not all of them. They, they uh, kept their own uh, parks department uh, that I worked for. Um, but they uh, had at that time, you know, in the 1950s, a, a unique idea of that. Hey, these are just services, and there's no reason that a government needs to provide them. We just need to guarantee them. Um, and so for any number of things, trash collection being uh, chief among them, they contracted them out to uh, private vendors who would be up for like three-year contracts, and then they would have to uh, roll it over or you know, compete again on price and quality. And as a result, um, if you look on a map uh, of all the cities around Lakewood, most of them are disasters. Belfort, Hawaiian Gardens, Compton, Downey, um, parts of Long Beach, um, they were not governed particularly well because they were doing the old model. The government should be the monopolist provider of X service. Um, you can reorganize money so much better that way. And to your point about sort of the moral freedom to choose, this is where it becomes really, really personal for a lot of parents uh, in this process. Um, I was able to exercise my freedom, the latitude, um, to organize a pod for my youngest uh, kid. Um, and, you know, she and the kids in that little pod were able to make a pretty decent year out of a pretty bad year. Um, it infuriates me that people do not have 
the choice, whether by money, latitude, or whatever, or just simply there's no charter schools allowed in this district that they're in, um, to make similar choices. It should be a stain on the conscience of all, especially wealthier people, especially people who have organized their lives so they, they can exercise that school choice, um, that there are people of lesser means who don't have similar choice. That is material. We should allow these choices, and we should, yes, understand that government, generally speaking, does not organize very well as a monopolist provider of services. This is something that was much more widely understood and accepted by Democrats even in the 1970s than we see it now. But they're going to have to reorganize their thinking because the public school model, as a result of everything that's gone on, is on the verge of blowing up or just changing in ways politically and structurally um, so fast that they're going to have to come up with a different response than what they've done so far. Now, on the issue of charter schools, in doing my reading, um, I, d- I learned something that struck me to some degree as counterintuitive, and perhaps you can speak to it. In the decision, charter school versus government-run school, um, a sub-issue appears to be that remote learning versus in-class learning. And there are very strange racial divides on that subject. Different racial groups have different desires. It's, it's strange to me how it divides along racial lines. So if you can, if you have an observation, um, how does the issue of um, different points of view about in-class versus remote learning play into the decision of public school versus private school? And if you can give any insights into why that is occurring, I'd appreciate it. Uh, so a couple of framing points at the outset. Always good to remember the charter schools are public schools. They're just not government-operated public schools. Private schools are private schools. And charter schools um, have been just about as closed as public schools because they usually have to operate under the same pandemic uh, kind of restrictions about what gets to be open or closed. Yet, they still were a more popular choice. Um, bracket that for a second with an observation about public uh, opinion on uh, a reluctance to go back into school buildings, which uh, the, that reluctance has pulled much higher among black families in particular um, and Latino families as well. Um, it's Asian families, but it's, it, it might surprise people. However, those polling numbers always look different when, um, when suddenly those same parents are offered the opportunity to go inside of a school building. Disproportionately, the schools that were closed were schools in minority and poorer areas, even within the same city. So in New York City, um, if your school was reliably open or as open as possible last year, chances are you're going to have more white kids than not. Um, and if it was all closed all year long, chances are you're going to have more black kids than not. It is strange. Um, it's a function of um, disproportionate uh, economic uh, indicators and things like that, but it's been out there. But as soon as those parents are given the opportunity to say, hey, look, no, we're going to give you the option to come inside of a school building, they would all rush in. Uh, parents of every race, creed, color, and socioeconomic status, when given the option to send their kids into a school building, more than two-thirds of every one of those groups get it. So um, that kind of skews numbers. Some people, like, you pull one way, but then when you're given the option, it kind of looks a little bit different. That all said, throat clearing, um, it is, remains true that, that black families in particular uh, have more uh, reluctance about sending their kids into school buildings. And here's where a paradox comes up. I mentioned before, Bill de Blasio in New York has been really like, we got to open the schools, so much so that he's, he's, has said, I don't want any remote learning. Well, um, now you look around, and these black families who are reluctant to send their kids back in school, they don't trust um, the school district themselves. They think it's unsafe. For whatever reason, they have this distrust. What can they do now? They can turn to charter schools. It turns out that charter schools are going to be benefiting from um, by saying, hey, look, we're going to have a remote option for all of you. And there's a lesson in all of this, which is that uh, the one-size-fits-all model of top-down government planning on stuff um, 
tends to make some uh, subsection of parents upset. Um, and it might go well for this group this year. It might go bad for the same group next year. Um, so as a result of these things, it's the charter schools who are going to bail out the public school system in New York because a lot of black families in particular um, don't, want, don't feel safe going back into school buildings. And the charter school system is more flexible and say, okay, look, we've been working on this. Um, we have a way to maximize the remote learning, which is suboptimal. But like, if that's the choice that you want to make, we're going to figure out a way to do that as best as possible. New York with a one-size-fits-all can't accommodate those people. And that's a parable. Like, they just When you're top-down and when you're politicized, you're going to make these very crude, stamp-like decisions. Um, and it's not going to be satisfying for people. For the second time in this one-hour broadcast, um, you have mentioned um, what was in my brain going to be the very next topic we were going to discuss. Uh, and you just did it again, Matt, with your reference to one size fits all. Um, in our country, indeed in the world today, we are living in a world that everything we get, everything we get is seems to be custom made. We are getting more choice than ever before in every decision we make. Um, the world has has found out how to give each of us exactly what we want at the price we want to pay for it, more or less. But in any event, clearly that's the trend. That is indisputable. And here we have government-run education, which, as you just said, is burdened by delivering one-size-fits-all in it at a time when we are learning that we are all individuals and all of us one way or another, or each of us is different from the other in to some degree. And to me, the, the, the ultimate fatal deceit of government run schools is they are burdened structurally. They can't, they don't have the skill and never will to deliver a specialized product, which is education, uh, education perfect for the gifted child, for the child who's less gifted, for the child whose orientation is more to the arts than the sciences. We just reduce it to the lowest common denominator. And private schools have learned, and charter schools have learned how to do that. And it seems to me, Matt, <clears throat> that a crucial dynamic is just as you have said, the public schools, government run schools will always be burdened with one size fits all. And I think that's going to be their downfall there. And because of issues like equity, it's unfair to devote tax dollars to more gifted students, to the prejudice of less gifted students, if gifted is in fact a precise word, but you know what I mean. And I think that will, the public cannot help but demand from education what they expect in every other good or service they get, which is a good or service uh, designed to meet their particular needs. Um, uh, we have about a minute left, Matt. Uh, any thoughts on the profound competitive disadvantage that government-run schools have in yes in being burdened by one size fits all? Yes, uh, it's it's additionally uh, burdened because if you look at the uh, preponderance of public school education policy making, the trend lines uh, just prior to the pandemic, and this has remained throughout. Uh, even even during, it's been to get rid of gifted and talented programs. It's been to get rid of, in New York, specialized high schools. Um, we don't want anybody uh, rising too far above the trend line because if we can measure that backwards and it doesn't look uh, in the right demographics that we would like to achieve, then there must be something institutionally or structurally racist about it. We started to see enrollment declines in New York um, and especially in the uh, pilot uh, districts, which mine is one of them, who started implementing some of these leveling policies 
we started seeing that one year before the pandemic. Enrollment had grown uninterrupted for a decade. It, it declined 7% in my district overnight the first year that they did a radical overhaul of admissions policies and got rid of all possible like student performance metrics as part of it. This is happening nationwide. So these two things are, are compounding each other. Just when everyone is learning that they can tailor-make their own homeschooling products for their kids, public schools are saying, nope, we're not going to do any specialization at all. How do they think this is going to end? It's not going to end well for them. Matt, I'm just going to close with um, one observation on this one-size-fits-all. You may have noticed that the New York City Department of Education has uh, is looking into getting rid of things like the honor roll and class rankings in school. Uh, and I'm going to quote, um, recognizing student excellence via honor rolls and class rank can be detrimental to learners who find it more difficult to reach academic success. Don't you dare award a student for doing well because it's going to hurt the precious feelings of the student who didn't make the honor roll. If if that becomes the policy, it's game over for education in New York City. Uh, this is Bob Zedek. We've been speaking to Matt Welsh, um, editor at Reason Magazine. Uh, Matt, ha- um, how can our friends out there follow your work at Reason Magazine, please? Please go to Reason.com. Uh, you can also uh, follow at Reason on Twitter, and you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Welch. And please follow Matt. Um, He writes with humor and intellect, and he has a a worldview that he can see through the fog better than any other journalist I have ever read. This is Bob Zadig thanking Matt for joining us for this past hour and inviting you to please subscribe to and enjoy my podcast, The Bob Zadig Show. Give your comments Plus and minus, uh, we welcome all constructive criticism. Rank us if you choose to do so. And I hope to be back again next Sunday for another hour of libertarian thought. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the three-day weekend.